Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Jen came into significant wealth in her early 30s. Over the years, her wealth has grown to a number she never could have imagined. She chose to write her memoir to share her story and encourage others to talk about wealth. Her story is disarming, honest, and a delight to read. As a fundraiser, I was enlightened by her honest recounting of giving big gifts for the first time and her own identity shift as a wealthy woman. Jennifer Risher was born in Seattle, Washington, grew up in Oregon, and graduated from Connecticut College. She joined Microsoft in 1991, where she worked as a recruiter and then as a product manager. She and her husband David have two daughters and live in San Francisco, where David is CEO of World Reader, a nonprofit he co-founded with a mission to create a world where everyone is a reader. In May 2020, Jennifer and David launched Half My Daff to inspire more charitable giving. We Need to Talk is Jennifer's first book. Jennifer tells us we need to talk. So listen to us have a conversation about her book, Half My Daff, and how you can get involved. So let's do it. Let's talk about wealth. Hi, Jen. Welcome to The Debrief. Hello. It's nice to be here. I feel so lucky to have you speaking in honest and transparent terms as a donor. That's hard to find. Oh, I'm glad to do it. Thanks, Catherine. <laughs> Yeah, so I want to spend some time talking about your book called We Need to Talk. I absolutely loved it. I read it in just a couple of days. I couldn't put it down. It took you a long time to write it. Is that right? It took me a lot longer than a couple of days. Yes, it took me. Actually, I wrote it for 14 years. Well, I started writing trying to figure out my own situation and kind of come to terms with it, but it's hard to talk about money in a way that's not offensive or off-putting. So it took some time. I think it's well worth it because we have so much to learn. So what inspired you to write it and start this conversation? 30 years ago, when I was 25, I got really lucky. I joined Microsoft and I met my husband, David, and then I got stock that was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And six years later, when Dave and I were married and expecting our first child, he took a job at a small unknown startup that was selling books on the internet called amazon.com. And, you know, we were in our early thirties, the company went public and we had more money than we could wrap our heads around. So I want to say up front that money makes life easier. I'm very fortunate, but wealth surprised me. You know, having a lot of money doesn't look or feel like what Hollywood sells us. Wealth can be isolating. I felt the impact as a parent, as a sister, as a friend, and as a daughter, it was painful to feel as though my parents disapproved of what I had. And eight out of 10 people with wealth grew up middle-class or poor. So this is an emotional challenge that, that many people are facing. And it might feel, it might sound hard to, to think of wealth as a challenge that needs to be overcome, especially now when there's so much need. Um, you know, COVID has really spotlighted racial and economic inequality. I should pay more taxes. You know, we need higher minimum wage. We need a stronger social safety net. We need reparations. We need so many policy changes. 
But I think change can happen at a personal level too. And I'm hoping to move money out of the taboo category mm-hmm. and out of the shame category and get us talking to each other. Because normally in my life, when I have a problem or a question or a challenge, I turn to friends. If I want to figure out, should our 16-year-old have a curfew? I talk to everyone I know. I get their ideas. I hear, hear their advice. I get different perspectives. And just talking is helpful because then it lets me know that my problem is, is normal and that it's valid, it's shared, mm-hmm. but the same doesn't happen with money. And so when I couldn't talk to my friends about having a lot of it, so I thought, okay, I'll turn to books, but there really are no books. To answer your question, I wrote my book, well, first, because it's a story I'd want to know about if it hadn't happened to me, but I also wrote my book for the millions of Americans like me who have more money than they had growing up. Or they have more money than many in their extended family, or they have more money than many of their friends. So I'm sharing my story to help other people understand their own. And my goal is not to be prescriptive. I don't have the answer for how to do rich right. I'm simply offering up a story that really hasn't been told that explores things like how challenging it can be to navigate a vacation with another family if they don't share your resources or how upsetting it is to feel a friend's jealousy and not be able to share what's really going on in your life. So I wanna demystify wealth and validate the experience. And I also wanna get us talking because the more I talk about money, the more I realize that it's not the numbers that we don't talk about, it's the emotions behind those numbers that we avoid. And these emotions are universal. It really doesn't matter how much is in your bank account. If you have a partner, if you have parents, if you have siblings, if you have friends, you probably know that money's uncomfortable to talk about. You know, we're afraid. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of hurting someone else's feelings. We're afraid we won't measure up or that we'll sound unknowledgeable. I mean, we all have some degree of money shame and we all have a money story. Um, It starts in our childhood. From the fundraiser's perspective, which is a good number of our listeners today, you'd be surprised to hear that even fundraisers are uncomfortable asking donors certain questions about their wealth and opening the conversation. I'm not surprised because we don't have any practice with this. I mean, I think it takes even the fundraiser, you know, it takes a long time to get comfortable making those asks and talking about this thing that we're kind of, we grew up not talking about. I mean, when I was growing up, it was really impolite to talk about money. That was, you know, unladylike in our household and we just wasn't done. So it's, it's a muscle we need to build. And um, I'm really hoping that, that I can help people kind of get a little uncomfortable and get through the discomfort because on the other side, there really is a chance to connect and learn. And especially for a fundraiser to realize that in, in many respects, a donor is looking for the same thing you are. We're all want to make an impact. We all want to have, uh, we want to do what's right. We want, we, and if you have a, something that you care about deeply, and let's say I care about animal rights or I care about reproductive health or about racial justice, I'm looking for a way to, to make an impact in that space. And if a fundraiser has a nonprofit that's working in the same space that I care about, you know, we can be a team. It's, it's not a transaction. It's a relationship. But you can't be a team without building that trust and having the conversation, right? Very true. Yes. 
So of course everyone's different and we don't want to make sweeping statements, but how can we think about approaching donors who are perhaps uncomfortable with their wealth and starting that conversation with them? Do you have any advice on that approach from the other side? I mean, the thing is, you have to realize that it's as uncomfortable as it is to ask for money, it can be uncomfortable to, to be asked for money. So we're all in this together in our discomfort around it. And I think maybe that's a nice way to approach it. I mean, if you feel comfortable saying, you know, this is this is uncomfortable for me. I'm, I'm about to have this conversation about money. We don't talk about it often. So I just want to acknowledge it's an, an uncomfortable conversation. I mean, being vulnerable is really a, a nice way to enter a conversation because we can see our own vul vulnerability in other people and that mm -hmm. kind of opens the doors for, for communication. Yeah, and talking to one another as, you know, colleagues or equals or peers. Yes. There are so many dynamics, but I think that helps disarm the conversation to think of it that way, of sort of a leveling. Yeah, I, I think that it, yeah, that it's complex because it, in some ways you, as a, as a fundraiser, are thinking, you have something I want and it's money, but I think that's a little bit of a, a problematic approach. I think the better entry point is, is you know, we have a common goal and, a, and that goal is to, to help women understand their, their um, reproductive rights or something like that. And, and how are we going to do this together? I mean, as a fund, as a donor, I feel like, wow, there are so many people doing the work that needs to get done. And I so appreciate that. And I'm, I feel lucky to be able to have the resources to help people do the work that needs to get done. So mm -hmm. it's a partnership. Yeah, I think that's right. Was it scary to put your story out there and to publicize your family's experience? I've been writing it for a long time. So it's been part of our life. It's been part of my family's life for a long time. And I have two daughters. It's like, oh, mom's working on her book, mom's book. I mean, mom's book was part of our family for so long. But yeah, when it was about to be published and out in the world, that is a little bit vulnerable. And I guess I just believe in the importance of these conversations so much. Um, I think it's incredibly important to shine a light on the reality that people are not seeing around wealth for the individuals who are affected because it's a way to connect. It's a way to learn from each other to have conversations, but for our society as a whole, when we don't talk about something, it, it's, it's held in, in the dark and we can't really see it. And I think you know our silence has a lot of power and that silence just keeps the status quo in place. Mm -hmm. And it keeps us from examining our relationship with money. It keeps those of us with money you know, kind of stuck in a bubble and, and unaware even of our own privilege. And so I wanna shake things up. I, I think this is something that, that is important for all of us to talk about. And I, I guess we have, I feel like we have to start kind of with those closest to us because we're not even having conversations with our, within our own families. And income inequality happens within families too. It's a tricky and complex subject because it's actually quite emotional. And I think that's what makes it so hard. It brings up a lot of emotions. And um, when we don't talk about it, it looms large and kind of becomes bigger than we are. But if we can kind of address those emotions, I think we can get to the other side and, and put money in its place as a tool. Mm -hmm. um, so after each chapter of the book, you've included discussion questions, which I actually personally really enjoyed. It helped me sort of think through and process the stories that you told about your own life. 
course, I'm encouraging everyone listening to read your book, but maybe we could talk about a few of them and how you came up with that idea. Sure. Yeah. And no, I'm, I appreciate that you, you enjoy those. And I, I kind of perceive people, um, you know, those questions are, are good to, to contemplate for yourself, but it also is a great book to read with a partner or read with your parent or give it to a friend and read it together. And then those questions I'm hoping will prompt converse, help prompt conversations because it is hard to talk about. And if you had, but if you had a question that you can kind of share and, and, and discuss together. Yeah. So there were a few that I wrote down just because I thought they were very thought provoking. The first was what stereotypes of wealth and the wealthy do you believe hold true and why? I think that is such an important question for fundraisers to ask themselves, because if we mm -hmm. hold judgment, that's a problem. It is a problem. And I think stereotypes in general are a real problem. Overgeneralizing uh, and, and no one wants to be grouped into a, a group of people and people want to be seen as individuals and as human beings and not as part of some larger stereotype. So I think stereotypes in general are, are sort of insidious. Um, and, and the problem is we have such a narrow view of wealth in our country. We see the highly visible wealth. Mm -hmm. We tend to see the glitzy and glamorous and the corrupt. I mean, we know about the Kardashians and the real housewives. And we know about the parents who illegally tried to get their unqualified kids into top schools. Right. But, you know, like I said, eight out of 10 people with wealth grew up middle class or poor. They're not the glamorous and the glitzy. They're just so much more ordinary and more diverse than people see or believe. Mm -hmm. You know, even I fall into the idea that, you know, of the stereotypes and I can sometimes surprise myself like, oh, that person has a lot of money, huh? They're just so normal. <laughs> and, and I think that's what, what, what's missing in part of the conversation, the bigger part, part of the conversation about, about wealth. It's right. problematic. Another question, what is your first money memory and what emotions were attached? Our money story starts in our childhood. It's kind of where we get our attitudes yes. and our beliefs and our habits around money. And these are really hard to escape. <laughs> They're very ingrained, but it's important to be aware of them. One of my first memories was um, we had a big magnolia tree outside our house and the leaves would fall and, they, and my dad offered me a penny for every two leaves I picked up. And that was my first job. And I went out with my mom and my younger brother, I was probably five, put all the leaves into bags and just was you know, so excited to have this job. And then when my dad got home from work, he counted the leaves and then he counted pennies into my hand. And, and he was sort of saying, you know, here's, here's money, it's not much, keep it safe. And I put it in my piggy bank, I hid it in my room. And the feelings there were just the importance of being frugal and responsible with my money. And that is something that was so ingrained in me growing up, mm -hmm. which has served me well, but also been a handicap in some ways <laughs> in allowing me to, you know, actually enjoy and, and kind of feel a little bit of relief of the, the good fortune I've had in my life. And the psychological aspect of it, I think we see that with people who we know they quote, can give the gift, but they don't, they're not ready or they don't see themselves as giving that gift. And that that's really tough because that's a very personal decision. It, that's a really good point. Yeah. How do you identify? I still identify as a responsible, frugal person. This is, you know, part of who I am. 
And yeah, when when you think about someone that you can see has a great deal of capacity, but you're wondering why on earth are they giving more? This is a, and I can say it's it's a it's an evolution that people have to go through just as I kind of went through an evolution of how to have and spend and, and kind of be a person who has money and admit to that and kind of come out around that. It, the same journey happened with my giving. Like I didn't grow up learning about giving money away. I, you know, my, my mom and I took canned peaches to food drives and we took clothes to the Goodwill, but you know, my dad sort of felt like charity was for chumps. Like if I, if I saw, we saw someone on the street um, asking for money, it was sort of like, oh, he's taking advantage of us. So that was my kind of childhood. And it really wasn't until I got to Microsoft and I was surrounded by peers who were giving that I started to give. I gave a percentage of my paycheck to United Way and I gave money to Planned Parenthood. And then I began to give back to places that had given to me. And then the, the real learning was kind of when my daughters started an independent school and those schools really started to teach me about giving. They asked me for an amount that I was shocked at. And, and then the next, another step was our financial advisor suggested we put money in a donor advised fund, which is a charitable vehicle where you put the money in and you get your tax break up front. And then you, you have time to kind of figure out how to give it away. And that's the moment I realized, oh, it's not actually letting go of the money that was the hard part. It's now figuring out where to give it mm. because I felt overwhelmed. I felt like I had to have a philanthropic strategy. I had to do all the research. I had to do it right. And my fear of getting it wrong kind of got me stuck time. And that was a long time ago. I'm happy to say I'm unstuck. <laughs> but when you ask about like, you know, donors who maybe aren't stuck, maybe they're somewhere along that journey they're not thinking about their net worth, they're thinking about the amount that they've given. And if they've only given $1,000 in the past, that's what the fundraiser needs to look at and think, okay, let's, let, let's get that person to double that money. Let's get that person to $10,000 and realize that that's kind of where that, the anchor is not, not your net worth, it's, it's how much you've given in the past. And it takes time. And I think it's, you know, recognizing the donor with capacity and giving them time and helping them. And also that mindset of I'm going to help them unlock with the giving that they, they probably want to do in their hearts. They just haven't kind of experienced it yet. And, and it, is, it is a muscle that needs to be practiced and, and built up. Yeah. Meeting them where they are. Mm-hmm. The third one, which I'm so excited to talk to you about because we we just work with so many more men than women. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of your questions was, do you think gender influences how you see money? We're very lucky to hear from you as a female philanthropist. Yes. Yeah, I do think that's true. I wish it weren't the case, but research is still telling us that we're teaching, we're not teaching our girls how to, we're not teaching them how to invest. We're, we're teaching our boys, but not our girls. So we have a lot of work to do, but I do think women we, we need to be talking to each other. I mean, we talk to each other about everything else. We talk about our, you know, health problems and our parenting and, you know, where to get a great piece of pizza. And we, and we share information that way. And we need to be talking to each other about how much do you pay in rent? You know, are you getting a good deal? We have to be talking to each other about our salaries and our income and how much we should be charging an hour. Unless we're talking to each other about these things, we're, we're not gonna find equity in the workplace. We need to really share this information. We need to share information about, you know, how do we get out of debt or how do we invest? 
And, and I think it's building that confidence. And because I think honestly that women can be leaders in this space. Women are the ones that are gonna lead in conversations around money. We're the communicators. We aren't as likely to shy away from emotions and men have their egos so tied up in their net worth and their salaries, their identities too tied up. I think we're the ones that can really lead. And I think that's being played out right now because I think we've been leading behind the scenes for a long time, but now research is showing, I mean, women give and we give in community and look at our leaders now like Melinda Gates and Mackenzie Scott and Priscilla Chan. And these women are really showing how it's done. And I think we can lead in the space of philanthropy. And I think we can lead in the space of, of having conversations about, about money. So do you think the transparency of, did you negotiate that deal or like you were saying, rent, salary, do you think those things are actually tied to giving? I've never thought about it. Well, you know, I hadn't thought about it either, but I think any place where we are talking about money, it's giving us those skills. It's building that confidence. So if we can talk about our rent, we're much more likely to talk about how much we're going to give to another organization or, or, you know, wow, we're thinking about philanthropy. I think it's all tied together. We just need to get money out of the taboo category and say, Mm -hmm. look, this is something we can talk about. It's a number, it's a tool. Let's, let's share information. Yeah. So we talked about giving as a woman, you mentioned your husband, of course, he's a huge part of your story. Something that we consider is, do we approach the couple for a gift? Do we, do you ask, you know, does your husband or wife want to join the conversation? Would love to hear what you've liked in terms of how you've been approached or not. (laughs) And then just hear about if you and your husband do your philanthropy together, or you have your own projects, how do you two do that? As far as the, what we do personally, like we both, I mean, David works for he's the CEO of World Reader. And so he thinks about it nonstop every day, but we all, we both kind of think about kind of how we can support the organization financially. And, and then he has his own sort of pet things that he will give to and I have mine. So I think we do, we've done a lot on our own. For me, I've been very interested in equity and community. So I've given to organizations, um, live in California. So organizations that support the Latinx community. I support girls through Girls on the Run. And I still give to my mother's group, my mother's group when my daughter was 20, she's 23 now. So 23 years ago. That's a big Um, part of the book. I love that. It is. Yes. Yes. So I still have my things that I support, but the, and maybe I can segue here into kind of what we've been doing together this last couple of years. And that has been so wonderful. I think there's a lot of power in like, when you think about getting a couple involved, if you can get them both engaged, I think you're going to have a lot more success in kind of Mm -hmm. keeping them going and and kind of long-term engagement. At least that's how I feel. I, and I, and I do know that women kind of like to give in community. And I think it's really powerful that way. And giving as a couple feels very powerful. Half my dash. This is been... a passion. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about half my dad. Uh, yeah. Thanks for asking. So, um, you know, with, with COVID, when COVID hit, my husband and I were just, you know, we were sitting in our backyard, our hearts going out to nonprofits and thinking, what can we do? And, you know, I kind of had doubled down on places I already gave and 
David as a, a nonprofit leader was like, you know, these foundations that had kind of planned to give to us are, are pulling back and our, our donors are kind of shying away. Like, and he couldn't hold, you know, you can't hold your luncheon, you can't hold your fundraising event and how are nonprofits gonna survive this? And they're working harder than ever because there's so much more need than ever. Mm -hmm. So we thought we, we wanna support nonprofits at the same time, we were very aware of this money that's sitting in donor advised funds. And I mentioned them earlier. And again, a donor advised fund is a, a charitable vehicle that you, if you have a, a tax event or you want to put money aside for giving, you can put it into this fund, you get your tax break up front. So it's very easy to put in because you're getting a tax break. Maybe your financial advisor suggests it or um, you have some sort of event that you, you think, oh, I want to kind of, this is a good time to take a tax break. And you put it in and then that's it. There's nothing that, that kind of gets you to move that money through, even though that those are irrevocable, you can't get those that money back. It's charitable Money's dollars. Gone. It's gone. And it's earning some interest in the DAF, but it's not yours. And it's often sits there and it's sitting there to the tune of $140 billion now is sitting in donor advised funds throughout the country. There's over 870,000 donor advised accounts. This is a, a real problem. So we thought, how do we help move that money through? Mm -hmm. And how do we make our money go further? Like we wanted, we put up a million dollars to inspire others to give. And we said, if you commit to moving half of the money in your donor advised fund out to nonprofits, the places you support will be eligible for a matching grant from us. And we did this last year, we put up a million dollars and our million helped move $8.6 million out to nonprofits out of donor advised funds. So for donors, this is a great opportunity because you have to you have to move that money, commit to doing that, and then once you've all the nonprofits you've supported will be eligible for grants from us. And for nonprofits, I mean this is a real win-win because it gives you a chance to to approach donors, ask them, do you have a donor advised fund? Share your story with them and tell them about the opportunity to get a matching grant. So last year we did this for five months from May 5th to September 30th. And we've launched this year again. And this year we have $3 million to be given away. And we want to invite donors to join us to move that money out of their DAFs. We want to invite nonprofits to start thinking about their, their DAF donors and helping them, telling them about this opportunity to get a matching grant. Well, you're going to laugh because I was actually talking to a donor last week and he said to me, well, you know, I do have a DAF, but I don't know if I can use that for Columbia and I'm just not really sure. And I said, of course you can, of course you can give through your DAF. And I said, you know, the money's gone now. Right. And he was like, it is. And like, he didn't quite know. And I was just thinking of you and was encouraging him to do so and said oh okay you know I'll do that it's amazing to me how many people don't fully understand it it's amazing and it's 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 confusing for nonprofits because you know if you get a, a DAF donation it can it can be from Fidelity or it can be a check from a community right. foundation without the names attached so you don't even really know where it's coming from that can be confusing for a donor I mean we've learned that people Put that money in and then you know there are a fair number of people who feel like oh i forgot i had a DAF, 
they don't even know or they they're you know in that state of overwhelm they they know that money is not theirs but they don't know where to give and they and they're worried about getting it right they're kind of in that that place of trying to do a bunch of research and then just it's overwhelming or you know they're light, they're busy and yep. you know they're working nonstop and and they really don't have time to think about you know making donations or they feel like oh if i give it away then i don't have it anymore they sort of see it as a so that's what this this donor was like well i feel like i want to let it grow like it's no. not a savings account it's not a savings <laughs> account and and if if there's ever a time that that money is needed it's now i mean there's such a crisis in our country we need and more wealth will be created i'm not worried about that we need to move money now and and support the organizations that we care about because they might not be around in a couple years if we don't support them now yeah some might not survive so how if someone's listening right now and they're thinking oh my gosh i'm so excited i want to get involved where do they go well, they can go to www.halfmydaf.com and there's instructions for donors and there's instructions for nonprofits. Um, they can contact us if they have questions. And, you know, our goal is really to inspire people to give. And so with that goal in mind, we have not, we say, give wherever you want. We will match any gift unless it's anything uh, that supports violence or hate crime or gun ownership. We won't match any of the things that does that, but we'll match anything else. So give wherever you want. We have over a million dollars of matching um, dollars, dollar for dollar, up to $10,000, and in some cases up to $50,000 and $100,000. And then we have some interest areas. So if you give to an organization that, that supports racial justice, climate change and environment, education in underserved communities, or reproductive rights, um, there's more money there. So you're, if you support one of those organizations, there's even a greater chance of getting a, a match from us. So the only thing you need to do is commit to halving your DAF by September 30th. We will be randomly selecting um, organizations to, to get matches in the middle of uh, May, and then again in the middle of September, or at the end of September. and Make that commitment and start to give. And then for nonprofits, I mean, we've included, there's instructions there. We've included a form to send to donors to, to talk about Half My DAF. If you just Google Half My DAF, you'll, you'll see what other nonprofits have done. There's some examples out there um, that you can, you can use, but it's a great tool to, to kind of get to know people who are DAF donors. And, and what is a DAF donor? This is a person who I mean, again, it's an individual, we're, we're all different, but you know, they, they likely have some resources and they, they've put this money aside for charitable giving. So they're probably at one point have thought charitably and will, you'll be doing them a service to help move that money into action. It sounds like this has been really fun for you. You're smiling as you're talking and I can tell you. Well, that's, it. it's really been, and, it, and you know, my husband and I kind of came up with this idea I was thinking oh how is that going to be to work together so closely on something like this we've you know done press together and we kind of brainstormed and it's been very fun and it's also mm -hmm. become a family thing because I have two daughters and our our younger daughter was home because of COVID and we were during the summer we were doing half my daff and and she ended up doing a lot of work on it helping enter nonprofits into the, our database and get back to donors and because it was a lot it's a lot of work I was gonna say I'm really impressed <laughs> you've been doing this on your own 
we've been doing it on our own. But so she got very involved. And now our older daughter is also involved in helping out this time around. That's another theme. I don't know if people who are listening heard my episode with Esther Choi, but we talk about how important it is for first-generation wealth creators to include their kids in their philanthropy and in these conversations. It sounds like this was a really creative way you were able to do that. It was really creative. It's not only including them, but listening to their voice because Mm -hmm. they're a different generation and they think about things very differently. And I have to say, my husband and I got the most incredible Christmas gift because what they gave us is money towards half my DAF. They had met with each other. They had met with our advisor. They came to us and said, we want to be part of this. And our older daughter said, I want to put my money towards racial justice issues. And our younger daughter said, I want to do climate and environment. And so that's been incorporated into our our plan for Half My DAF 2021. That is so powerful. Wow. Wow. Yeah, very exciting. I'm a proud mom. (laughs) Well, thank you for talking to us about your book and Half My DAF and for just opening up. We desperately need to hear from more donors. I would love to end with my signature question, Jen, which is what do you know for sure? I know for sure that these conversations are so important. We need to talk about money as a way to connect with each other, to learn from each other, and for our society. If there are people in pain, we're all in pain. We're interconnected, and we need to be talking to each other. Thank you. Thank you. I highly recommend you pick up Jen's book and start your own conversation about wealth. Jen gives a valuable glimpse into the donor experience. Please connect with me on LinkedIn or check out the debrief on social. We're on Instagram at devdebrief and online at www.thedevelopmentdebrief.com. Thanks for joining us and have a great week.